Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa Buddhang tamang sankhang namasami so this starts to get into the juicy part of the retreat for many of us, uh, getting into the routine of uh, nothing much to do. Uh, there is a few jobs to be done, but there's so much free time. And this is uh, where the, it's a good opportunity for some of us to really get into the development of our mind. And we often just focus on the meditation because... Often there are so many strange views about what Buddhism is, what Nibbana is, and instead of telling people what to believe, I always prefer to telling people how to find out. And the only way to find out is, again, through looking at the teachings of the Buddha, the sutras, but also to look at those in light of the experiences one has in the deepest of meditations. It's always the case that only when the five hindrances have disappeared, only then can we trust that what we see, how we understand things is correct. Because when the hindrances are in operation, they bend the truth. So we see what we want to see, and we can't see what is just too challenging for us. In other words, we bend the truth. And of course, that's no way to be wise. So it is the five hindrances which have to be overcome, which is why we practice like this. And it's a difficult thing to overcome those five hindrances. And you cannot overcome them through willpower, as I keep on saying. The only way to overcome those five hindrances which obstruct wisdom and stop you being peaceful is through the wisdom power. And so that these, you know, they, if those five hindrances aren't there, this is the litmus test. The, the way you can find out, are those five hindrances still there or not? And if the five hindrances aren't there, there is nothing between you and jhanas. You can enter so easily. So if you can't enter the jhanas, it must mean the five hindrances are still operating. And if those five hindrances are still operating, it does mean you can't trust your wisdom and understanding. It's a hard thing to say, but that's basically it. So the ability to attain those jhanas is an, ability, is an indication that you've got these five hindrances licked. So this is why I keep on just emphasizing the jhanas and emphasizing just trying to get these deep meditations. So once you do get these deep meditations, at least you know you can trust the insights and understandings you have because they're not bent or distorted any longer by the five hindrances. But how do we apply that wisdom power? And again, scratching around for something to talk about this evening, it just came up into my mind that there's like this... What's, I think somebody was talking about in one of the interviews, the three ways for Wimoka, and Wimoka means like liberation, 
And I know that sometimes people think that means enlightenment, the three ways to liberation, enlightenment, but it's more likely that the Wimokas mean uh, the jhanas, because they have the eight Wimokas that literally do mean the jhana states and the immaterial states as well. But the three ways for Wimoka was depending, what was it called now? It was the apanahita, which is desirelessness, the sunyata, which is emptiness, and animita, no nimita, but it's basically uh, depending upon the cultivation of anicca, uncertainty. Now these are three ways, the three liberation ways, you know, taught by the Buddha. And for me, it means these are three little ways one can empower one's wisdom to get deeper and deeper meditations, and eventually leading into the jhanas. It's ways to overcome the five hindrances. And the first one, the apanahita, is no desirelessness. It was when I first came across that teaching, just... You know, investigating, exploring the suttas as a young monk, you, know, you came across this teaching, desirelessness was one of the ways to get into <coughs> the liberations. And of course it wasn't, it wasn't effort anymore, it was just using this way of perceiving, of not wanting anything. And this was uh, supposed to be a way to get into the deep meditations. And it was basically, it was supposed to be um, in, informed by the understanding of dukkha, of suffering, that this was not worth keeping anything, that everything you wanted would eventually lead to trouble for you. And of course, being a young monk, you know, you had your fantasies and your dreams and your plans. But whenever I did have any fantasy or something, I would try and see where it would lead to. And it was the the um, it was the what's it called the the way of saying then what then what then what then what because in all fantasies all the stuff which you see in movies in Hollywood all the fantasies all usually stop at and then they lived happily ever after then they won the prize and they were famous and they lived happily ever after. They found their, their soulmate and they lived happily ever after. They were the hero, they lived happily ever after. And of course, and it just stops there. But for me, whenever I uh, had any problems with a fantasy or a dream, I would think, then what? And I also applied that to... Later on in life, he wasn't fantasizing about sort of romances or being a billionaire or uh, kicking the, the winning goal in a sort of a competition. Then the fantasies became building perfect monasteries. And then it was, then what? And I know that now because it's 31 years building a monastery, then what? In other words, it's never finished, is it? And for those of you who are designing uh, buildings, always remember, okay, it's, it's done, then what? You find out that building a monastery is never finished. It always goes on and on. It's continual burden and irritation. It is suffering. It's the same with uh, romance or something. Then what? I remember even... When Ajahn Sumato first went over to UK, now there was a couple over there 
who were having a lot of, they were living close by to um, Chittas, that's why the monks got to know them. And it was an interesting case because this couple, they were in their 80s, I think, and one of them was really, really sick and was about to die. And the other one, the other partner who was healthy, was suffering more than the, the sick partner because they had had you know, what you might call the perfect relationship and perfect marriage, meeting when they were young, falling in love, just hardly having an argument at all throughout their whole lives, no financial problems, no health problems. They had such a happy life together, they were attached so much. And it was one of the partners that had so much happiness throughout their whole life the prospect of that now ending with the death of their loved one was such a horrendous prospect, they could not endure it. And so they were begging their partner to stay alive, even though their partner was in so much pain and discomfort, simply because all the happiness of their lives they had, now they had to pay for it, with the parting, with the ending. And when I heard that, I said, yeah, exactly, you know, you may have a happy life, you know, you may have sort of, you know, a good time, you may pay off your debts, you may sort of, all those things you aspire for, then what? I remember just sometimes that people would come to Australia and say, all I want is some freedom, then what? It never ends. And that's a problem with you no know, desire. It is endless. Or what somebody said, desire is always unfaithful. It promises you that once you get this, then you'll be happy, you don't need to desire anymore. As soon as it gets what you want, it wants something more. Just like a person who marries a girl, and then as soon as he's married, he goes and has a mistress. It's called unfaithful, always wanting something more. Never ever satisfied, and satisfaction means the ending of desire. And so, the whole thing with dreams, fantasies, hopes and plans, I always sort of stop them all with then what, until you got to the stage, well, so what? It's not going to satisfy you. Because what desire promises you that once you get that, then you can have some peace. All I want is, you know, to get my own house, then I'll be happy. And of course, sooner or later, the only way you can be happy and at peace and have some rest is to cut that desire, to stop it, not to encourage it. It's just like these itches we have sometimes on our body. You scratch them, the itch gets worse. It doesn't disappear, it gets worse and worse and worse. And sometimes all you have to do is to restrain yourself from scratching, and then the itch gets away. Like the desire, sometimes if you keep following desire, it gets worse and worse. And sometimes all you need to do is to restrain the desire, not going to follow it, and then it goes away. And a lot of the desires we have, you know, in our fantasy world, in our... Uh, ordinary world, all of those are pretty much the same. If you keep following them, they get worse. If you restrain them, they tend to disappear. And that especially happens in one's meditation. So the desirelessness is just a perception which one holds throughout the period of your meditation. Yeah, you may be watching the breath, you may be just doing a body scan, you may be just watching a nimitta, whatever it is, but the desirelessness contemplation or perception the apanahita is always there in the background. 
saying, what do I want? I don't want anything. Even jhanas, as Buddha says, it's jhanas are suffering. Hard to really say that after you just had one. But, you know, they are compared, you know, to the peace, the stillness of you know, Nibbana. So what do you want this for? So the desirelessness is whenever you are especially meditating, is not wanting anything. Now I know that sometimes this is my teaching of doing nothing. I make this of the ways to Wimoka the first because I'm very used to this one. You know, for a couple of years I like to tell people when I was, I think, four, fifth, sixth year as a monk, I was practicing desirelessness as my major meditation practice. Not so much doing anapanasati, not doing body sweeping or even loving kindness, but doing desirelessness. No desire, no desire. So whenever I saw any desire come up in my mind, you know, my mindfulness caught it immediately and just stopped it. As simple as that. And what actually happened when you did not have the desirelessness, the mind didn't go off fantasizing or thinking, because that thinking, that restless mind, is a product of desire. You want to think, you want to fantasize, you want to figure it all out, you want to control things. But if you have this perception of no desire whatsoever, no wanting, it means that the thinking stops. Now, why do you think? What is thinking all about? Thinking is trying to control the world, trying to make it the way you want, trying to make something, trying to get rid of things which irritate you. And all that thinking stuff which goes on in the mind, it is just a bad habit. So never justify the thinking process. Never have the impression it's going to lead to anything other than headaches. Thinking does not lead to wisdom. Usually leads to arguments. But stopping the thinking by letting go of all desires, not wanting anything, that leads to peace. And that peace is wisdom. Wisdom is not a set of ideas you can convince other people of. Wisdom is a peace. And so when you practice this no desire, if you practice it correctly, if you understand what I'm talking about and you apply it, because you don't want anything, because you're not desiring anything, number one, the mind doesn't move off into the future. You are in the present moment. It's desire which takes you off from here and moves you off into the future. It's actually desire which creates time. And it creates this time, it makes it happen, it makes the future. So it's a great experience to have minutes, hours, that's what the clock says, but you don't know it, of no desire when you're in timelessness, you're in this present moment. And when you have no desire, you know, the first two hindrances you know, are just blocked off, and they can't appear. And the second two hindrances, restlessness and sloth and torpor, also tend to vanish because you, know, you start to get some energy coming up. You start to getting stillness. 
As I often say, just quoting from Ajahn Chah, all the restlessness of the mind is the same as the leaf which is moving on the tree. It's not the tree's fault, it's not the leaf's fault that it's moving, it's the wind. It's not your mind's fault that it's restless, it is the desire, the wanting, which is creating the restless mind. So wanting is a problem. So if you want the mind to be still, of course it's not going to be still, it's more wanting. It's just the wind coming from a different direction, but that leaf is still going to be agitated and fluttering. It's just so your mind is never peaceful when you want it to be peaceful. So instead, you know, you are mindful, you're aware of this thing called wanting, desire. And you're so aware of it, and that's your main perception, you are practicing the apanahita path to vimoka, the desirelessness. And when you focus on that, it's actually very effective and not that hard to do. You're not focusing on the breath, you're not wanting to get jhanas, you're just focusing on this wanting itself and just letting it go, not indulging it, not encouraging it. And you find after a while it's very easy to stop it. And it, it's not there, you don't want anything. And when a thought comes up of wanting something, you can stop it. And the result is fantastic. You know, you're sitting there, you don't want anything in the whole world. It's contentment. And as I mentioned last week, the contentment doesn't stay one thing. It develops, it builds up energy. It builds up power. It gets really hot. Just like the, the focusing a, a magnifying glass you know, on a sort of piece of paper. It gets hot, it builds up energy, and it uh, starts to become a fire. You know, using, using the linguistic analogy, linguistic connection between jhana and fire. Jayati also means to burn. So it builds up this beautiful energy. So the mind becomes incredibly still and powerful and deep and really, really aware just because you're not wanting anything. And that works in meditation, it works in your life. What do you want? It's great that you, know, you can sit in your cave, sit in your hut, what do I want? Nothing. You have some peace at last. How much do you need to find some peace and contentment to be able to rest? And a lot of times we say, oh, I'll just get this, I'll just get this out of the way, then I can rest. I will just get this washing up out of the way, then I'll rest. I'll just get this letter out of the way, this email out of the way, this project out of the way. And you find that many of you, your whole life is getting out of the way and still haven't found peace. So what you do is just, you get all the wanting out of the way by stopping it. And you find you have all the peace and happiness you ever want. Simply because you stop the problem, the wanting. Remember that wanting is unfaithful. It promises you that once you get this done, then you can rest. And it never happens. As soon as you get this out of the way, the wanting is strong. It creates another job to do. Another project, which is really important. And I just get this out of the way, then I rest. Please never get sucked into that. I'll just get this out of the way. Please get jhana out of the way. Get enlightenment out of the way. And then you can do all the building and the books and everything else.
So this is how we practice non-desire. Understanding, and apparently it's by developing a perception, this is all suffering, what do you want it for? You know, just more buildings in this monastery, more monks in this monastery, more disciples. Crikey, I mean, this, I was just thinking the other day, you know, I, I do think sometimes, I'm stupid too, that there's over about 50 people in this monastery. I don't know how many people are now, I think even just more than that, about 60, because apparently on the Sutta class, you know, I had to get about 40 copies of the sutras. And the monks don't go to that. There's about almost 60 people in here. You know, to, for me to sort of, and if I was really responsible, to look after and to teach. It's a lot of people. How many more do you want? And the point is that you don't want anything. You try to let go of all wanting, all desire. And even just wanting less, wanting more. You know, in my position, there's so much stuff you have to do. And if I really get into any sort of wanting at all, I don't want this, why do I have to do this? Then I will suffer immensely. So instead of getting into negativity, I don't want to be the abbot, I don't want to be the storeman, I don't want to be uh, the anagarika, I don't want to be the head anagarika, I don't want to be the jhana grove caretaker, I don't want to be this, I don't want to be that. That type of negativity is another type of wanting and it just creates too much suffering. So instead I develop this beautiful contentment. Every time I f comes up I want or I don't want the negativity, the mindfulness catches that straight away and just stops it. And develop this beautiful not wanting anything in the whole world. Meditate, I don't have any goals. I'm not trying to get somewhere. I'm just letting go of wanting. And that can only be done right now. Trying to let go of wanting, wanting to let go of wanting, as you all know, is just another goal setting. More of the same, more of the same. Instead, you're wise enough to realize wanting is the biggest problem. Stop it. And be content with what you have, with who you are. And you find the path develops. And you get into the liberations. The liberation from suffering. Because all wanting is suffering. It's separation from where you want to be. Association with what you don't want to be. That in the Dhamma Chakrapawatana Sutta is called Dukkha. So we let all that go. No wanting at all. And what happens is you sit down there on your uh, seat and that's what you just remember. I don't want anything. And any desire which comes up into your mind, you don't follow it. Even good desires, let alone bad desires. A thought which comes up into the mind, you don't try and stop it. You look at that thought and say, not interested. No desire at all. And when I did that for, say, two or three years, you got some very peaceful meditations. And maybe that's where I really learned how to sit for long periods of time simply because when I didn't want anything, I wasn't creating the perception of time. And again, it is desire creates time. When there's no perception, there's no desire, no wanting at all, the whole idea of time just totally disappears. And you have a lot of freedom when you don't care and you don't know minutes, hours, days, 
Who cares? And you're totally free. So that's one of the liberations. The second liberation, the sunyata liberation of the mind, is it just is no one there. You know, the 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 uh, non-self perception, which is another one which I use a, a huge amount of time. You know, so jhana happens. Who attains the jhana? It's not me. There's no guy in here. There's no Ajahn Pram. So why am I trying so hard to get jhana when no one gets it anyway? So the idea of non-self means it's not my business. That became the perception I used to do the, the sunyata uh, path to liberation. Everything which came up into my mind, I say, it's not my business. Nothing to do with me. I was sleepy. So that's not my business. I am not sleepy. It's just my body, just my mind is tired. I've been working too hard. Oh, I'm sick. So it's not my business. I was restless. It is not my business. It's just brain doing what it wants to do. When I took off this label, if it's me being restless, it's me wanting things, it's me having ill will, that also stopped the hindrances in their track. Basically, they did not have a place to rest on. The sense of self... Now is a place, an alaya, a place where things can rest on. An analaya, you know, is where things can't have a resting or a roosting. That is a simile which I gave to someone on their interview of just a bird flying over the ocean with no tree, no place where it can rest. It flies, flies, looking for a place to rest, never finds anything, and so it dies and drowns in the ocean. And this is a case where all the thoughts, the fantasies, the wants and everything, because it has no place to rest, no sense of me, self, I, Ajahn Brahm, whoever your name is supposed to be, all of the, everything has no place to rest. The breath, sloth and torpor, nimitas, have no place which they can rest which means they all vanish. The nimitta comes, because everything else has vanished. And then the nimitta vanishes. And you get jhanas, and the jhanas start to vanish. And you get into arupas, simply because there's no place they can hold on to, roost and settle down. They vanish. They disappear. So a lot of times... Uh, now, that's another contemplation which I do regularly. Always realizing there's nobody here. You know, sometimes, you know, as a senior monk, you get praise. Sometimes you get blame. Sometimes you praise yourself. Sometimes you blame yourself. Usually other people do it for you. And after a while, you know, why, why do you even bother worrying about that? Now, who the heck are they blaming? Who are they praising? There is nobody in there to praise, no one in there to blame. I hope I didn't say this last week, but I said it recently to somebody. When I was, I think that's why I said this in the Saturday evening talk, when I was in Sri Lanka recently, and the monks 
because it was in front of everybody's TV cameras as well. One of the monks asked me directly, Ajahn Brahm, are you an arahat? And, you know, instead of just, because it was a monk, I couldn't really just say, well, you know, I'm not allowed to answer. So I decided to answer it head on. And I told this monk, a senior monk, I said, look, if you can tell me, you know, who is supposed to be an arahat, whether it's my Rupa Kanda, my Vedana Kanda, my Sanya Kanda, Sankara, or Vinyana, and which Vinyana it is which is an arahat, then I can maybe answer you. And he was actually quite happy with that. And, you know, it was a good answer. There is no self in there, so who the hell can be an arahat? And who can be a stream winner? That sense of the uh, emptiness perception, you know, from anatta, that means that what are you striving for? Who, who becomes an arahat? Who, become, who gets jhanas? No one does. So, you know, after a while you just give up. You abandon. And then the jhanas happen. <laughs> and then enlightenment happens. You know, it's not quite the way you expected it. But it's the truth. It's the way. It's a wisdom power. Which, all these states which, you know, I talk about, other people talk about, you read in the suttas, they actually happen. And they don't happen when you think that you are the one who's going to attain these things. Remind you of Ajahn Chah's great teaching. He would keep emphasizing this. You meditate to let go of things. You don't meditate to attain things. He also said that, you know, you come here to die. You know, to this sense of self and me and I and ownership. That's supposed to die and disappear and vanish. Those were perceptions, you know, of anatasanya, of non-self. You know, the sunyata, there's nothing in there. There's no place for anything to rest. There's no place you can put medals on. The first jhana medal, the second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana medal like they have in the army. You know, you can't put the cap on because there's no head. So this is where we understand just how the sunyata, the emptiness, there's nothing there. Zajan Chah kept on saying it's one, nothing there. And that's when you develop that perception. That becomes one of the great paths to liberation. And the last path of liberation, I left it to the end because it's the most refined, is a path of animita. And it's supposed to come from impermanence. Impermanence, is that the right translation? Anicca, uncertainty. And often... Uh, remark to people that when they start to contemplate you know, the three characteristics of existence, anicca, dukkha, anatta, you know, they always think that anicca is a simple one and they think they understand that. And that's always a danger sign. Anicca is probably the most profound of all the three. Dukkha, I think you can probably get your head around that. If you've fully got your head around it, you'll be a stream winner. Anatta, yeah, you can sort of understand, but the point is we assume we've understood anicca, which means that we haven't. It's one of the most profound of the three characteristics. I'd say it's the most profound, but people think it's the easiest. That is the difficulty. 
wrong assumptions. So the Buddha called it, fascinatingly, animita, pata vimokas. And of course, you know, I've said a lot about animitas. This is using the word nimitta as like a way that you can grasp something, a sign by which you can understand it and uh, possess it. I remember just as a kid, um, there was, for many of you who may have grown up in Western culture, there was a fairy story called Rumpelstiltskin. And it, if I remember, maybe a Grimm's fairy tale. And it was a story where there was a very poor girl. And this, you call it like an imp or this, uh, what would you call it, a little demon called Rumpelstiltskin. He had some psychic powers. And he taught this little girl how to weave, uh, weave gold, I think it was. I may get some of the details wrong here, but the, the major part of the story, the essential part, I remember, and that uh, she would have to, after you know, weaving gold for a week to pay off her debts and uh, get some wealth for her parents, then that she would have to actually, I think, be his wife or something for the rest of her life. That was the deal. And at the very end, that she managed to renegotiate, and she said, and he said, "If you can, if you can know my name, then you are free." You know, from the debt. And he had this really weird name, Rumpelstiltskin. And eventually, she found her na- the name. And as soon as she had his name, she had power over him. And it was always like getting the name of something would give you power. And I also remember being a student at Cambridge and going to this uh, society, the Psychic Research Society. We also had every year, I've mentioned the time we had a, a demonstration from a hypnotist, we'd always have a demonstration from a witch who would come and tell us about witchcraft. I always remember this guy because he had this, this great name for a witch, Trevor Ravenscroft. That was his name. <laughs> Great name for a witch. And I also remember, you know, his opening lines, you know, in front of this audience of students. He said, I am a witch. That's pretty scary. And he said, There are two types of witches white witches and black witches. White witches are benign, they're no problem. Black witches are extremely dangerous. They can cause you a lot of harm. And he said, I am a white witch, so you're okay. And, you know, even though it was an audience and I was supposed to be a, a physicist, a scientist, still, you know, I felt quite relieved that it was a white witch. And then he said with a smirk, but even black witches always say they are white. <laughs> and I was scared again. But I remember one of the things they were saying that one of the ways in witchcraft of having power over people is getting their name. The name is a source of power. And that sort of, I always remember that because that had, you know, maybe didn't believe in witchcraft, but the psychological truth of that was actually quite immense. 
you control things by having their names and having their details and having their measurements. And if no one knew your name, it would be very difficult to deal with you. I recall, you know, because when I do read the newspapers, I like reading the weird stories. And I remember reading this weird story of this fellow, I think he was robbing a bank or somewhere in the United States, and the police arrested him. But they couldn't do anything with him because he didn't have any ID on him. And when they said, what's your name? He said, I'm not telling you, that's your problem. <laughs> and so this guy, the police did not know his name. They were trying to find out who he was. I think in the end they had to release him. Because to charge anybody, you have to have a name. And he didn't have one. And he refused to give it to them. So in the end, he was off on this loophole. You know, he was caught red-handed, robbing a bank or something. But they couldn't find his name, and he wouldn't give his name. So according to law, they had to release him. They had no power over him when you don't have a name. <laughs> so please don't tell that to the prisoners up in Carnet, and otherwise they'll find another way of getting But it's a strange thing. If you don't have any name, you don't have any power over it. So when you don't have any name for what you're experiencing in meditation, you don't have any power over it, you can't control it. You let it go. There's no other way. When you don't judge it, that's the other little teaching which I gave years ago. Lord Kelvin, the, one of the founders, he was, I think the founder of the Royal Society in Britain, of uh, scientists. And he stated the only way we can control nature is to learn how to measure her accurately, first of all. So the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution in Europe began by having accurate measurements of things like time and mass and length and weight. Once you had those accurate measurements, then you could have technology. You could control nature. When somebody told that to me, I soon figured out how profound that statement was. Because if you stop measuring things, if you stop giving them names and qualities, you cannot control them anymore. And when there's no control, there is peace, freedom, stillness. There is letting go. So again, that's another way I've meditated from time to time. Whatever I experience in meditation, I don't give it a name. I don't measure it. I certainly don't give it a name. This is good, this is bad, this is peaceful, this is restless. I don't give it a name at all. Names are measuring. And when I don't name it, when I don't measure it, you find you can't control it anymore. This whole thing of craving, again, has no place it can settle. It's got no handle it can turn. Which means that things stop. Now there's no more steering wheel, there's no more pedals. There's nothing which you can touch anymore. There's no means of control when there's no naming. When there's no naming, there is this beautiful uncertainty. That is how Ajahn Chah would describe anicca. 
So uncertain, you don't even know what its name is. So uncatchable, uncontainable, not able to put it in any box of any category, which means that you have to leave it alone. When I don't give things names, letting go is the only thing which is left. You can't do anything. You just become very peaceful, very empty, and very free. When Ajahn Chah kept on saying, Anichar is not impermanence, it's uncertainty. Just radical uncertainty. Total, nothing you can rely upon. I know that people think that's chaotic. We try and create certainty in our lives by just, we call it security, by having our superannuation, by having our money in the bank, by having our safety nets, by having our family, by just having our insurance policies. And we all know just, just how uncertain those insurance policies are. When you really need it, <laughs> you find there's some clause somewhere which you didn't realize, which means the insurance company doesn't have to pay out. There's a joke in the joke book. The guy's, the guy's some house burnt down. And he claimed it on his insurance policy. And he said, no, sorry, you know, your insurance policy was fire and theft. But my house burned down, it's fire, but it's fire and theft. It had to be robbed at the same time. <laughs> be, care be careful with your insurance policies. <laughs> but, you know, even those things, we think it gives us a sense of security and certainty. But imagine what it would be like no insurance policy at all. Radical, total, 100% uncertainty. And you sit there. You've got no place you can squirm to get any sense of safety. It can be a bit scary at, at first. But remember, I often tell you, please face that scariness, because on the other side of fear is always freedom. So when you face that sort of scariness, of always trying to have everything worked out, so secure, so safe, so sort of uh, uh, dependable. You take that away, all you've got left, the only place you ever have anyway, is just now. All that security is just too much looking into the future. And instead we let that future totally be uncertain. It means all we do have is the present moment. That's the only place we have. We can't rely upon the future. It's anicca, unreliable, which means that all of our attention can only go into one place, which is the now. This is the place your future is made. This is where safety is, not in the future. This is where peace is built right now. It's the only time you ever have. So that sense of anicca, unreliability, stops you going off into the future, keeps you still in this moment. And of course, just being in this present moment is a great power source to getting still and peaceful in the meditation. And everything else which happens, oh yeah, jhanas come, jhanas go, they're uncertain, but you have this radical uncertainty, which means you don't aspire for anything, you don't want anything, because what you're wanting for is just too uncertain. 
And you do get a jhana that disappears again afterwards. You do get insights, but then afterwards you forget them. <laughs> There's another little joke. So one day I realized you know, enlightenment, but now I forgot it now. That sucks. <laughs> that was not real enlightenment. Just an idea. So real enlightenment, real freedom, there is, there is no one there. There's nothing to want. Future is unreliable. Scary at first. But when you go through that fear and accept that, because you know that's true, that's Dhamma, you can't argue with that. When you accept that, it's a wonderful sense of things vanishing, things disappearing. Because how much of your life is built on fear, trying to be secure, trying to predict what's going to happen, plan where you're going to be, what you're going to do. Even those of you on retreat, you know, planning how you're going to spend the next few days. It's too, too uncertain. Stop planning. And then you'll have far more peace, far more bliss. Be much closer to enlightenment. As the animator, you can't find a sign on anything which is really reliable and true. Good meditation, bad meditation. First meditation teacher told me there is no such thing as good meditation or bad meditation. There is no such thing. It's a powerful teaching which I remember. I don't know where he got that from, but that was, that was really good stuff. Restlessness? What is restlessness? If you give it a name, then you are restless. Stop giving it a name. Stop giving it a sign. The sign of restlessness. Then see what happens. After a while, there's no place you can be restless to. It stops. Enlightenment? What the hell is that? That was the other sort of weird thing which I recognized as a young monk. Everyone was trying to get enlightened, but who the hell knew what it was? And I made the simile, it's like getting on a bus you know, to Nibbana, not knowing where the hell that bus was going. That was a scary thing. You know, do I really want to be there when I get there? And that was a scary, scary, scary thing, aiming to become enlightened. And in the end, he saw that was a stupid way. That's not the path of the Buddha. You don't aim for anything. You stop all the aiming. You stop all of the desire. You stop all of the wanting. You stop all of this owning stuff and making it happen because you want to, to achieve something. And you stop all this giving things names. Scary stuff. But do it in your meditation. Just give it a try for half an hour. Meditating with no names. With no power over anything. Scary because you're going into a place you've never been before. A place where you have got no control. Where you aren't. Where things can be peaceful and still. There's the three ways to liberation. Anicca, totally unreliable, hasn't got a name. Empty, there's no one there. No one to become enlightened. Nothing to, to own these so-called attainments. If you think you're attained, you've missed it. And lastly, just not wanting anything. Totally at peace. You don't want anything in the whole world. 
You're finished. That's the talk tonight. Is that a good talk? Yes. Bad talk? No. <laughs> it wasn't even a talk. <laughs> I didn't give it. Pano Bhagavato Sama 